These are the tribulations of Paulette. New coat on my shoulders New shoes, feet ain't wet Bright light, brand new walking cane And I ain't that wood Dazzling sunshine reflects off the white marble headstone of Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy and beams through my car window illuminating every pore on my face. In this perfectly revealing light, I'm able to clip hairs from my schnoz with a pair of blunt tip scissors. I await Dolly and the coffee she promised to bring. Meanwhile, this is as good a time as any to have a go at these Johnny-come-lately shocks of whisk-broom-like hair that protrude from my nostrils. I note that while collagen, ovaries, and brain cells are in the process of closing up shop in my middle-aged vessel, hair production remains at an all-time high. In fact, every time I scrutinize my face in good light, I am reminded of Smitty, the facially hirsute car mechanic of our youth, the butt of endless family jokes and award-winning Halloween costumes. As I lob off my own clumps, I think surely this must be payback. This nearby cemetery, which I had always thought of as a quiet place, is in actuality a beehive of covert activity. These past few days alone have yielded a dossier of critical neighborhood intelligence. For example, we never get our daily mail until 5 p.m. When I complained, our post office told me that this is because of a lengthy delivery route. Add to that Billy the Mail Carrier's diurnal graveyard siesta, and you've got mail all right, not a second earlier than martini time. Aside from the permanent residents, Billy is by no means the only one catching 40 winks at the Holy Hood Cemetery. Squad cars from local police stations dot the landscape, along with the occasional UPS truck. I've even spotted a few neighbors swapping cars having had a different type of siesta altogether in some other less perpetual resting place. Dolly shows up with Pete's. How's the old girl doing today, she asks, slipping into my front seat. Hanging in there, I say, swabbing bits of freshly cut nose hair from my chin with a wet one. I meant her, Dolly says, nodding toward the headstone. Yeah, right, I say. You got tweezers? Can I borrow them, Dolly asks, and I hand her a cloth pouch. She flips down her visor and starts to pinch off whiskers around her lips. Hey, so get this, she says. Jason has invited Bunyan and me to a dinner he's whipping up tonight at his new apartment on Beacon Hill. Someone won him at an auction. Are you going to go, I ask? Well, why not, she says. It'll be good for Jason to see that I have officially moved on and that Bunyan and I are an item. So, what are you doing? Uh, Ricky and Trudy are taking all of us to the movies, I say. Excellent, Dolly says, as she fires up her vape pen. Indeed it is. Several hours later, I drop my kids and in-laws at the entrance to the theater and scour the lot for a parking space. Dave, who grumbled about the film choice, plans to join us after work. Inside, I find Ricky pacing nervously in the lobby, holding my ticket. Did you get the kids popcorn and drinks, I ask? Well, I didn't know they wanted it, he says. Oh, they want it all right, I say. I watch the horror on Ricky's face as he's forced to pay for popcorn and bottled water at the Regal Cinema. The tab comes to 65 bucks. 
we carry the booty into the theater and the kids are thrilled. As the previews roll, my oldest son leans over and whispers in my ear, Mom, who bought all this stuff? Grandpa, I say. That's funny, because he told us if we wanted popcorn, we'd have to get it ourselves. I wish I'd brought my money. I would buy enough for everyone. You're a good kid, I say, and I squeeze his hand. Two minutes into previews, I realize that something's wrong with the speakers in the theater. Every ten seconds, there's a loud scratching sound. I glance over at Ricky, who appears to be tolerating the inconvenience, or at least pretending not to hear it, in his eagerness to see the film. The sound continues through opening credits. In the darkness, I see Dave coming up the aisle of the theater. He sits down next to me. I wait to see if he picks off the audio problem. About ten seconds later, Dave hisses, Can you hear that? This is unwatchable. He strides back down the aisle to find the theater manager. A moment later, I join him. The theater manager looks like he's about 14. Yeah, that's been happening all week, he says. I think we have a broken speaker. How can you show a film in that theater, Dave asks. Hasn't anybody complained? Not really, he says, but but I'll give you credit and you can come back any time. Shaking his head, Dave goes back in to round up his parents and the kids. While I'm trying to assemble a plan B in my head, a frowning Ricky storms down the carpeted hallway. He holds two receipts aloft in his fist. I'd like a full refund, he says to the manager. I'm only authorized to give you a credit, sir, says the manager, who squints at Ricky like he's seen him before and can't place him. It's hard for me not to stage whisper, Smeagol. Uh, no, you'll give me a full refund, Ricky says. I don't live around here. We want to return this popcorn, too. Then... Ricky's hypoglycemic mood turns really ugly as he tries to pry the buckets from the boys. To their credit, the boys balk. No, Grandpa. Ma, do we have to? Full refund, please, Ricky says tightly to the manager. I look beseechingly at Dave, who pulls out his money clip and hands four twenties to his father. Ricky pockets Dave's money, and Dave takes the credit slip from the manager. There's no question that Plan B needs to involve a stiff drink. I suggest that we all repair to the cottage for an early dinner. Two deep eddy vodkas later, I'm back on track. Ricky, who has a slight chance to redeem himself from his theater lobby performance, orders two $17 glasses of Cabernet and a veal chop. Not surprisingly, Ricky makes no move for his wallet at the end of the meal. When the check comes... Dave picks up the tab. Back at home, I'm able to get the kids and myself to bed by 8 p.m. Dave and Ricky stay up late to eat ice cream and watch the Red Sox. I fall asleep immediately. It is deep and pleasantly dream-filled. Something about Ted, Venetian blinds, and a massage. Five hours later and still alone in bed, I wake up from the ring of the landline. The clock says 1.30 a.m. and caller ID says private. Please tell me no one is dead, I say into the receiver. It's an hysterical and incoherent dolly. What's wrong, I say, leaping out of bed. Where are you? Newton, she blubbers. I'm in Newton. 
She puts her hand over the phone as she speaks to another person. Oh, they want me to hang up? Please, this is my only call. Dolly, could you just tell me where you are? Please tell me where you are. Newton is a big city. Oh, God. I'm at the Newton police station and I'm under arrest. I... We had an accident and they're holding me for DUI. You have to bail me out, Paulette. Bring money. She hangs up, sobbing. I spring into action like a superhero. Pulling on a sweater as I run downstairs, I find Ricky and Dave, dad and lad, sound asleep in front of the high decibel sports center. They leap to attention when I shut off the TV. I explain the situation and tell Davey has to come with me. No way, he says. She's your friend. She was the maid of honor at our wedding, Dave. Ricky looks shell-shocked that Dave and I would know anyone who would end up in the clink. Dave isn't going to budge. I approach him with my hand out. Fine, don't come, but I need cash to bail her out. How much? I don't know, maybe a hundred bucks. Dave reaches into his pocket and comes up with twenty dollars. This is all I have, he says. I turn to Ricky, possessor of many twenties from the movie theater. I need the cash Dave gave you earlier. Well, can't you go to an ATM? I'm not going to an ATM alone at 2 a.m., Ricky. Reluctantly, Ricky hands over the 20s, sad to see his movie refund heading toward a suburban bailiff. I fly out the door into the lonely night. It's unusually dark and creepy as I drive through the center of Newton, and then I realize it's because all the streetlights are out. A few blocks down, I see why. A bunch of national grid trucks and police cars are surrounding a broken telephone pole. Wires and yellow tape are already all over the place. I slow down and lower my window. What's going on? I ask a police officer. Really bad accident, he says. Somebody hit the pole and took down this transformer. All of Newton Senna's power is out. Looks like it's going to be out all day tomorrow, too. I thank the officer for this information. It's only as I pull away from the scene that I notice the huge white SUV being loaded onto the back of a flatbed tow truck, its front end completely totaled. Colorful Nantucket over sand permits line its back bumper, and its vanity license plate screams out to no one in particular that the owner of this hapless vehicle is someone called Dolly. You're listening to Eric Fontana. Deadly sins. Till then, ta-ta. Wonder time and wonderland.